Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me to 2 John again this evening. 2 John, we started into this brief letter last week, and uh, we'll continue on, make a little further progress tonight. Some of you may remember back, uh, it's been a good number of years ago, uh, someone actually asked me about it recently, which is why it came to mind, that Melinda and I used to have a dog. Uh, we have enjoyed uh, watching other people's dogs, taking care of them, even uh, doing that for some neighbors recently, and uh, just enjoying the benefits and fun of having a dog, and then later on sending it back with their owner. Um, and we enjoy, like I grew up having a dog, someone just asked me that last night, did you grow up with dogs? I'm like, yes, we had dogs, it was wonderful, I enjoyed that. Um, but there was a time, like right before Alethea was born, that we had a dog, and uh, that dog was around for a little while. Um, don't laugh too hard, but Sierra was a beagle-husky mix, um, so, uh, and had blue eyes, and uh, anyhow, we enjoyed having Sierra for a little while, uh, but when we lived in the White House, Sierra would occasionally get out. It seemed like it was always around church, like there was a fenced-in yard, and so Sierra could stay in the fenced-in area, but inevitably somehow, particularly if it was like a church day, she would get out and take off towards the soccer field, and the geese spend time on the soccer field. And for whatever reason, she seemed to connect with where the geese had previously been. And we're like, now we have a dog that is a mess, and we're trying to go to church. Why in the world she does that? I don't know. Or on the other hand, Sierra, uh, we lived in a townhome. She was there with us for a while. She would get out and run into the woods and find like little presents to bring back to Melinda. Like, you know, who doesn't want a dead mouse um, to go here? This is a sign of my affection for you. Uh, I'll leave you a gift here. Um, you know, I don't know why there's that instinct, I guess, that just no matter how much you try to domesticate them, they do not overcome. I mean, I look at this dog and I'm like, don't you realize you have a fenced in yard? The geese have not been inside the fence. This is the perfect place to play. Just stay in the boundaries. Or to realize, look, if you just go in the kitchen, there's a nice bowl of food and clean water. You don't have to drink the puddles, and you certainly don't have to find the dead mice. But you know, the dog doesn't want to stay in the boundaries, doesn't want to enjoy the free food it's given. It feels like evidently it needs to earn that food. Uh, it doesn't necessarily respond to the love that's shown within the boundaries that are given. I was thinking about that by way of illustration as we come to 2 John, because John is making the argument that love has to be practiced within boundaries. Two things that really societally people look at and say are actually mutually exclusive are actually deeply related in 2 John. It's the idea of here's truth and here's love. We can look back culturally over time, societally over time, and realize that people tend to have, have tended to emphasize one or the other. Certainly in our day, the uh, kind of in thing is to say, I don't know about that truth thing. Like, you do you, I'll do me. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. But like, I'm not sure we can really know what's true. But what is, rises above all is love. And that's where I think 2 John ought to be helpful and instructive, particularly to us as believers, to realize truth and love are not mutually exclusive. Actually, they are biblically related. 
know, I could argue with Sear all day long and go, your best life is eating the dog food in the bowl. You will be healthier. You don't have to worry about any diseases, like just eat the food in the bowl. Your best life is inside the boundaries. And yet I think we can even realize that when it comes to our humanity and this idea that truth is best practiced in, or love is best practiced within truth, sometimes we're like, but truth seems so narrow, it seems so hard. Or we might get it intellectually, but our flesh cries out against it experientially. I want to reread the section of text we covered last week, which was verses 1 through 3, as well as our text for this evening, which is verses 4 through 6. And as I read, I would encourage you just to note in your mind these themes of truth and love. Just six verses here. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ and the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. Even in these early verses, you see John again emphasizing the idea of walking in truth, walking in love. I'm greeting you in both the truth and love as well. And We'll see this, Lord willing, even next Sunday, but what he's going to get into, the kind of the issue at hand, if you will, begins to spell out. There are some boundaries as to how far you extend love when it comes to Christian hospitality because of doctrinal disagreement. By way of very quick review, last week we looked at the writer who describes himself as an elder, even though we recognize John's authority and gifting as an apostle Here we're pointed more to his spiritual maturity, his standing in the church as someone who is older and his uh, writing this letter. We went beyond that to look at the readers, particularly noted that they are chosen by God. They've, They've been saved, this elect lady and her children. We spent the bulk of our time last week looking at their relationship from the end there of verse one down through verse three, and we noted their relationship is marked by love, It's grounded in truth. It's shared with others. It's unified for the truth. Don't miss that there at the beginning of verse 2 again. Why do they have this? It is for the truth's sake. And then finally, it was blessed by God, both with God as the source of those blessings and then uh, these words that describe the substance of that blessing as grace, mercy, and peace. God's undeserved favor in grace. His compassionate kindness in need in mercy, and then their wholeness or well-being when it comes to peace. Tonight, we want to move to a fourth aspect in the opening of this letter, having looked at the writer, uh, the readers, their relationship together. Tonight, we're going to consider the reason for writing. And really, we'll break that reason into two parts. There's uh, what we're going to look at this week, and then what we'll see next week is kind of the continuation of that reason. But as we look at the text before us in verses 4 through 6, three primary parts of this reason tonight. First is a commendation, then secondly a command, and then finally a caution that he will give. So we get to verse four and look at his commendation. We could say it this way. It's encouragement from obedient living. Encouragement 
from obedient living. John is this older statesman who's going to write to this lady and her, her children and in essence say, you have brought me joy. You've encouraged me because of the way that you live. And we'll come back to this, but I'll already just remind us now that we ought to look at ourselves and go, you know, would others be able to say the same thing of me whether they do or not? It's not necessarily like I'm striving for recognition by others, but am I striving to live in a way that God could use me if he sees fit to provide joy and encouragement to someone else? That's John's point here as he writes about this woman and her children. There's encouragement to him from their obedient living. You'll notice first this commendation is expressed with joy. He says, I rejoiced greatly. He says, this is what's impacted me as I've heard about you. We have this relationship together in Christ, and your growth, your obedience, your faithfulness has impacted me. He calls it joy here, pointing to his emotion, if you will. To say, it's stirred my heart. It's caused me to rejoice in terms of emotion. But I also don't want us to miss that he gives us the extent um, it's not kind of like, well, you know, it just brought a little bit of a smile to my face, and it was just a fleeting moment. Um, he's like, here's the extent. I rejoice greatly. Like, this was good news to me, to know that your children are persisting in the truth. It has stirred his heart. As we continue looking at the commendation, we know not only is it expressed with joy, but secondly, it's based on faithfulness. It's based on faithfulness. He says, that I found of thy children walking in truth. That word found is in the perfect tense. It's the idea of, you know, I've gotten this information and it was true, but it also continues to be true. It wasn't like, hey, you did a good job that one time, although that would be wonderful and worthy of recognition. But he's like, I know that this has been true, that this continues to be true, that you are faithfully living in light of the truth in their continuance. Like, sometimes we kind of run past the fact that faithfulness is a wonderful thing. Like, again, I'm talking to the Sunday night crowd, and it is a wonderful thing. It's an encouragement to me to go, you know what, there are people who are just faithful. It is something that, to an extent, is dying in our day, like commitment over a long span of time, John's able to look at this lady and her children and go, you know what, I have found this to be true. I know it continues to be true that you're walking in truth, that some of your children are walking in truth. It is interesting to note, and I alluded to it in what I just said, the extent of this continuance. He says, I have rejoiced, or I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children. Some translations include the word some. If we just take the text very literally. It says, of thy children. Is it all? Is it some? We don't know. Like, we could make the argument, biblically, theologically, that it's not always all, right? Just think of the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, if you will. It wasn't all walked in truth. One very clearly did not. And it points along the way, each of them failed. But as John looks at this lady, he's like, I, look, at least some, perhaps all, of your children are walking in truth. And I appreciate that faithfulness. We look at that idea of walking in truth. We've seen this word many times, uh, both in John's writings and in Paul. It just speaks of how you're going about conducting life. 
You know, you're walking around. Here's what the conduct of your life looks like. And here it's described as falling within the boundaries of truth, of what is right. You're staying within the fence, if you will. We talked about this a little bit last week, but many times in John's writing, truth can be defined as a person. To recognize that God the Father is truth, and in his word it is also truth. It's that which sets a believer apart, John 17, 17. We were even challenged with this by one of the young adults this morning at the beginning of Sunday school as they shared a verse with us. But John 14, verse 6 reminds us that Jesus says he's truth. Or we can go to the Spirit in John 14, 15 as well and realize actually that God, uh, the Holy Spirit is also truth. And to go, you know, God in his person defines truth. And so we particularly recognize that in light of his word, that's truth. These individuals that John commends are faithfully living based on revealed truth. It'd be a wonderful thing if the same could be said of you and I, that we were encouragement to someone because we conducted life in the truth of God's word. Not just our opinions, not just, well, you know, they had the right doctrinal statement. Like, we don't want to just give intellectual assent to the truth. Like, I believe this. But to go, you know what? I actually banked my life on it. When I went to work, it impacted my ethics, my integrity. It informed the effort that I was putting in, not with eye service as men pleasers, but from the heart, pleasing my Savior. It changed my marriage. It impacted how I dealt with relationships. And we could go on and on just to go, you know, it's known that we walk in the truth of God's word. In looking at John's encouragement from their obedient living, we've said first, it was expressed with joy. Secondly, it was based on faithfulness. And then third, it prioritized God's command. Prioritized God's command. That fits in light of walking in truth, but we're told that this happens as we received a commandment from the Father. John isn't saying, hey, you just did what we wanted to. You followed our advice. He points to a higher authority. He keeps the authority where it belongs. Like we would do really well in our different relationships to remember this when God has given us a stewardship of authority, we're not the ones ultimately in charge. To go, you know what, the reason why we gather tonight is not because pastor wants us to or because we gathered on the Lord's Day is because the deacons wanted us to. Or it's none of that, but to go, what has God said in his word? To go, you know, why is it that a parent, parents in a certain way and children need to follow? It's like, so often it's easy to take that and go, here's what you did to me, and they, like, this is what I did to you. And it's like, actually, ultimately, it's about what God has said and the authority that God has given. John here is reminding them, you've walked in truth because we, all of us, he includes himself, received commandment from the Father. He keeps that authority where it belongs so that whatever God reveals becomes the responsibility to be followed. I would also just note for us, maybe as a slight aside, even in light of what we touched on last week, that John here is saying, once more, this lady and her children were an encouragement to him. He rejoiced greatly. They lifted his heart. So who is this lady? Like, what's her name? And again, we're just reminded, you don't know. I don't know. Like we get to those sections, Romans 16 stands out in my mind, where you get to the end of Romans 16, it's like, greet so-and-so, and greet so-and-so, and greet, and you're like, I don't know, like, 
Do a character study on them. And some of them, you're like, that's the only time they show up in the Bible, right? And yet we're reminded that God uses all kinds of people that, again, historically may seem insignificant, but spiritually God uses them to bless others. Beyond the commendation of this lady here, this encouragement from obedient living, let's look secondly at his command. His command. Here we'll call this an exhortation to obedient love. An exhortation to obedient love. We're in the second letter that John has written, and we hit this repeated priority of the Apostle John. I'm not going to take the time to take you back to all of these texts in, uh, individually, but if you were to go back to 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, you would note a high degree of similarity with what he's writing now in 2 John chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. You could continue reading into 1 John 3 and hear him talk about the need for love. You could get to 1 John chapter 4 from verse 7 all the way down to verse 21 and see him hit this same theme again. We could go back to his gospel where he records the words of Jesus, particularly that stand out to me is that interaction with Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper, John 13, 34, and 35, where it's a new commandment I write unto you that ye should love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, by the love that ye have one for another. John comes back to a theme that is not new, and yet in light of the inspiration of the Spirit of God, we're told we need to talk about this again. In fact, I was challenged even in my own Bible reading, if you're following the church's plan, you came across these same texts this week, that you can read First and Second Thessalonians, or even this morning, in what we read in 1 Timothy, and be challenged with the idea that love is to be growing. Love is to be abounding. Like in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, I'm actually praying for you. He's already commended them in chapter 1 for their love. Like he's like, I've heard about your love. But he comes to chapter 3 and he says, I'm praying that your love would abound more and more. And he comes to 2 Thessalonians and he's like, and I've heard that your love is abounding. It's like, good job. You come to 1 Timothy 1, what we read this morning, and there's again this idea that love is to abound. And so while this is a common theme, it's one we've touched in our study of 1 John, I would encourage you to pray through, think through, how can your love grow yet more? Who is it in your neighborhood, in your church family, at your workplace, who needs to experience God's love in a better way through you? I would note for us as we come to this command that he is urging her to obedience in verse 5. I think sometimes maybe in the transition of the words uh, here we miss it, but he says, and now I beseech thee, lady. Like I've told you, I've greeted you, I've expressed that God would continue to give you grace, mercy, and peace. I've said I rejoice greatly in what I hear, but now I am urging I'm begging you that you would follow this command to love. Again, as we look at this command, we realize that it's a reminder. It's not new revelation. You read those words in verse 5, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto you, but that which you had from the beginning. We touched this in 1 John chapter 2 when we were studying verse 7 and following. You can go all the way back to the Old Testament law and realize that there was a command given in Leviticus 19.17, 19.18, that you are to love those around you. 
Probably the more familiar text to us than the one in Leviticus 19 is Jesus' answer to the young man in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, where the young man is asked him, what's the first and greatest commandment? And he tells him, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And he says, on these two, hang all the law and the prophets. Like, you can wrap up all the Old Testament law, all the Old Testament commands by saying it's about loving God and loving those around you. It's got the, the boundaries, if you will, of the law, the truth of the law, defines what love looks like. But we come to the Gospels, and I've already alluded to it. I think Jesus gives us the clearest answer as to what John's referring to when you go to John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. And the idea of newness there is because he goes on to say, as I have loved you. It's no longer, well, here's what the law says in codifying how, what love is to look like when this happens with your neighbor's ox or your ox or all these different things that the law goes through. He's like, look, here's the command. You love as I have loved you. And that way, everyone will know that you are my follower because of the love that you have. Beyond looking at the command as a reminder, secondly, we want to look at the command as a responsibility. That we love one another. Several quick thoughts here as we talk about this responsibility of loving one another. First, I'd remind you it's practiced sacrificially. If you and I are going to obey this tonight, Monday heading into our week, loving one another is practiced sacrificially. Our word for love here is the frequent word in the New Testament, agape love, means putting one another, putting another's needs before your own. Saying, I will do what's best for you regardless of what it costs for me. Is 1 Corinthians kind of 13 kind of love, which we won't take the time to go through, but maybe even better for us to understand, it's Christ-like love. It's the love that he showed us. We touched it often, but I'll just remind you again, John 13, before we ever get to 34 and 35 with this new commandment, John 13, 1, tells us, 1 and 2 tell us that this night in which Jesus betrayed, he loved, agape loved his disciples to the end. He's going to give all because of his love for them. And so if we're going to fulfill our responsibility, just realize our love is going to be practiced sacrificially. Secondly, it's going to be practiced continually. That we are loving. It's a present tense verb, one another. Not occasionally. Not just on Sundays when we gather and it's like, well, we're all kind of together until it's really convenient. Not just when I feel like it. This is a regular, habitual practice of just going, how can I take those around me, particularly fellow believers, and show Christ-like love to them in sacrificing my needs to help them? This love is not only practiced sacrificially and continually, but thirdly, it's practiced interpersonally, or we might say not selectively, that we love one another, not just those who are in our same age group, not just those who share similar interests, not just those who have the same personality. Like there are these repeated themes. We, it's been a long time. Maybe we'll go through them again sometime soon. Uh, but we walk through one another commands of the New Testament. Like what's the church relationship supposed to be like interpersonally? And the number one command of the one another commands in the New Testament is love one another. Let the church be a place that is marked by 
so that people know we are disciples of him marked by love. Again, maybe another way for us to think about it is the opposite. Are there people you're like, no agape love for them? Like, sacrificial love? Like, I don't know, I just, not them. As we continue making our way through this thought of loving one another, it's practiced sacrificially, continually, interpersonally. And then fourth, it's practiced obediently. It's practiced obediently. We come to verse 6, and he says, this is love that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that as you've heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. He's saying the way that we actually live out our ability to show love to one another is by obeying Jesus, by obeying the instruction that he's given. Again, this is not a new theme for John. John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, if he loved me, keep my commandments. In John 14, verse 23, 24, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. My Father will love him. We will come unto him, make our abode with him. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. Again, we could start to work our way through. I won't, for sake of time, let the guess the Spirit of God give you application, but you start to work your way through the Gospels. Things like Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, how he prays for followers. Or like Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, or Jesus' parable about forgiveness in Matthew 18. And we can go text to text to text and go, so what does Jesus' love look like? Here we're reminded that if we're going to obey this command to love, it's practiced obediently, saying, God, how do I do what you want me to do? Certainly don't think it's out of bounds to extend beyond just the Gospels to look at the New Testament, where we've already touched on the fact that we're to be growing and abounding in love, like First Thessalonians, where prayer goes forth. To go, okay, maybe I go to Ephesians 4 and see, what does love look like there? You know, part of Ephesians 4 tells me that I'm just, I'm going to work really hard so that as God blesses that work, I can give to people in need. Like, not just give offering to church, but like, give to people who are genuinely in need. That's a unique love. We can look at other examples as well, but it reminds you that love is practiced obediently by following Jesus' commands. You work your way through the text here, First John, just through a couple simple verses this evening, or Second John, chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, and we're told that John, or God uses this lady and her children to be an encouragement to John because of their obedient lifestyle. But then after saying that, John comes around and says, I also want to challenge you, I want to urge you to obey continually in love for one another. Now he's going to put some further boundaries on that in just a minute, but I wonder what about you and I to go, are we an encouragement to one another because we love one another? sacrificially, continually, interpersonally, not selectively, say, God, I just want to obey your commands so that you're honored. Let's pray. Father, we've looked at a simple thought, not a new one for us, but one we've covered many times. Lord, I pray that you would take this instruction from you and use it to 
challenge us to love others, whether it be in our homes or certainly in our church or perhaps even beyond. But Lord, I pray that as we do that, you would also just use that obedient life to be an encouragement to others, that there might just be joy. Lord, certainly when we watch someone grow, it is encouraging, it's exciting. Lord, I pray that that would be true even in light of what we've seen in the text tonight. But God, again, we recognize that our ability to love is predicated on the reality that you first loved us. And so we do thank you for the love that you've shown us through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.